evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Does everybody have a book? That's the first thing you want is a book. Is, do you all have a book? If not, we... Yeah, the Bible, that's good. I'm, I'm talking about a commentary on First and Second Thessalonians. You all, have, you all have a commentary? Okay, we're all good. There should be some in the back there. We got more up front here. So, uh, yeah, Terry is pushing me back here just a little. But anyway, it's nice. You know, you're, ta- you're, t- you're taking over for those that are sitting way in the back here. Yeah, yeah, you are. Okay, well, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our, our study this evening. Is there plenty of books back there yet? I mean, I've got a... You got the... Uh-oh, you know what? Why don't you take one of those boxes back there? Thank you, sir. I know there's one way to get rid of you back there. Anyway. Yeah, that's not funny, is it? All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll get into our study here. Lord, again, we thank you for the uh, privilege to come together and study the Word. It is a privilege. We thank you for your Word truth uh, in a a world that is deceived. And so, Lord, I pray that it would be a profitable study as we work our way through First and Second Thessalonians this week. For all the other classes, uh, thank you for all the teachers and the workers in various areas. Uh, Just pray to bless our labors uh, for your glory. Commit ourselves uh, to you in our study now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we are, uh, as I say, we're going through First and Second Thessalonians. First uh, Thessalonians, the uh, theme is the day of Christ. Second uh, Thessalonians, the day of the Lord. And we'll see how that, you know, that follows. Day of Christ first and then the day of the Lord. But uh, open up to uh, page two as we get started here tonight. Uh, the author is the Apostle Paul. We're not, not sure exactly when he wrote, 51, 52 A.D. Perhaps uh, his earliest letter... Uh, let me put the theme up here. John, I don't have my screen on here for some reason. Anyway, I note there uh, the theme is the day of Christ, uh, the coming uh, of Christ for the church, which we commonly call the, the rapture. And uh, as we're looking at, you know, the theme of the book, that's a key one in, in the entire book. So note we've got the outline there. It's spelled out for you. And then, uh, uh, okay, let's see here. Yeah, there we go. It's up on the overhead, the, the theme there. Um, the purpose, note the purpose statement there. After a short stay at Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, uh, a church was founded there. He wasn't there for long. Uh, later on, on the journey, he received word that the church was doing well, and he responded by writing First Thessalonians to encourage them in the face of persecution. Uh, to refute false charges being propagated against him and to make clear the timing of Christ's coming for the church. And the believers who had died prior to that event will also share in the rapture. So there was a real concern at Thessalonica, like, okay, the Lord's going to come and we're going to go be with the Lord, but what about those who have died? Are they going to be left out? He's writing to assure them, no, no, there's going to be a great reunion between all the believers at the time of the rapture. So he's writing to that end and also to exhort them to holy living and to instruct them regarding their relationship to their spiritual leaders. Um, Note here, as far as the city of Thessalonica, just a little bit there, right in the middle. In Paul's day, the population was estimated to be about 200,000, so that was a pretty good-sized city. Uh, While today the population is about 400,000. I went to a school, Bible college, with a young man who was from Thessalonica. I thought that was pretty cool. You know, meeting a guy actually from that place. Uh, Note uh, here, um, let's see, what else did I have up there? I don't know what's happening, John. It was on, but it's off now. Okay, we'll see what happens. But it's not on. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, we're going to move along here. Let's go to the second page. Uh, page three. There was confusion, uh, confusion at Thessalonica. Uh, there was confusion over Christ's return. Uh, they were ignorant of uh, what would happen to the believers who had died, as I say. Some were not working as they waited. Uh, you know, kind of had a welfare mentality. We're just, we're just vegging off of the others. Some evidently were being persuaded in the context of severe persecution that the church would have to endure the day of the Lord's wrath prior to the coming of Christ. And, you know, there's still a lot of confusion there. Some people think we have to go through the tribulation period. 
And uh, Paul is going to be very clear. We'll work our way through some of those arguments to show, no, that's not the case. So uh, he's writing regarding these, uh, these questions uh, that they had, confusion and many questions regarding Christ's coming at the rapture and the day of the Lord and how, the, and how they relate. Uh, so Paul writes to clearly show them that believers, as believers, they will not have to go through the day of the Lord's wrath, which is a great, wonderful truth. He also clearly tells them that believers who have died will also share in the rapture. The word rapture, by the way, means to be caught up. It's, a, it's really a Bible word in the Latin translation of the Bible. Uh, that would be the, uh, the word that's used uh, related to being caught up as uh, it is translated in 1 Thessalonians 4 there. So, uh, let's try this again for my next slide here. No? Let me back up. Okay. Yeah, there, there's... Okay. <laughs> here we are. Um, Paul here is... Here's Thessalonica. You know, we're talking... He's going to end up here at Athens, but he's at uh, Thessalonica. That's the, that's the town we're talking about in our study here tonight. And then uh, here's where we are. The church age is where we live right now. And uh, then the conclusion of the church age, it began in Acts 2, what we call the birthday of the church. And then there's the rapture of the church. We don't know when that's going to happen. Uh, the, the beginning of the church was sudden, unexpected, and so will the conclusion of it be. And then that will be followed by the day of the Lord wrath. Uh, you know, the bulk of the book of Revelation uh, after chapter 3 is dealing with that day of the Lord's wrath. So that just gives you an overview of what we're talking about as far as the church age. Well, let's begin. Uh, we, on some of these verses, are not going to stay there very long. Uh, there's commentary all the way through here, and you can take your time and work through those commentaries. But in light of our short time together, I'm going to hit the high points here. Hopefully, we'll have a little time for questions. If you do have questions at the end, we'll see. No promises, but we'll, we'll see here. First uh, Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Silvanus is uh, the Latin uh, name for Silas, the Greek pronunciation. Uh, next paragraph, Paul addresses the church at Thessalonica. The word church in and of itself simply means called out assembly. could be used in a secular context as well. It was at times. But it is the word that the Holy Spirit chose to use in reference to God's called out people. That's who we are. We are called out of the world to Christ. We are the called out ones. We are the church. Next paragraph, the word church by its very nature relates to the idea of assembly or gathering. Paul addresses the believers at Thessalonica as a body and not as individual believers. Now that's important to think about. because Sometimes people think in terms of being lone rangers. You know, it's just me out here. No, we need to think in terms of, of ourselves as a collection of believers that God has sovereignly placed together to serve Him. It's not that we never do anything individually. We do, but God's idea is to build a family and to work in concert with the family. And we'll see that emphasis uh, come up again and again in our study here. Uh, bottom of the page there, last paragraph. In the New Testament, there's a concept of a universal church which consists of all believers in the day of Christ... Uh, in Christ from the day of Pentecost through the rapture. However, of the 114 times the New Testament uses the word church, 90 of those times it refers to the local church. So in practical reality, body life in the church age is lived out in conjunction with the local church. Really strong emphasis, practically speaking, in terms of where you have leadership, uh, where you have gifts being used, where there's accountability, all of these things in, in reference to the local church. Yes, there is the universal church aspect. That's true. All believers are part of that. But then God does his work. You know, the emphasis is largely through the local church in the New Testament. All right, page four. Uh, skip that opening line up there. The next uh, paragraph, the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Note the single preposition, in joins both the Father and Jesus, showing their unity, underscoring the deity of Christ. Paul's customary greeting is extended, which is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God's unmerited favor, and peace refers to inner tranquility and well-being. 
By the way, the next, uh, the next line there, the next, uh, not paragraph, but sentences there, the order is always uh, first grace, then peace. That's always the order. Grace and then peace. Everything builds on God's grace. Verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God, of our God and Father. So what spurs these prayers of thanksgiving is that Paul remembers three things about them. Here he mentions this triad of faith, love, and hope. And let's talk about that just a little more. Note under there, number one, your work of faith is literally the work of the faith. Appropriately, Paul starts with faith. This is where Christian life begins. Uh, it must be a living faith, and if it is, it will work. Uh, we're not saved by works, but rather by faith. However, if we truly have a saving faith, that faith is expected to work. And so you can see that even here how he talks about, uh, remember your work of faith. He doesn't just mention your faith, but you have a faith that works. And then labor of love is literally uh, the labor of love. And then three, uh, the patience of hope is literally the endurance of the hope. Hope in New Testament is a confident expectation, uh, not merely a wish. So it's a certain expectation that God will bring to pass what he has promised. <clears throat> Note uh, there too, under three, the, the words in our Lord Jesus Christ are most closely connected to hope. Next page, page uh, five. It is the coming of Jesus Christ for the church that is said to be our blessed hope. Uh, how wonderful it is that we are looking for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. Maybe in our lifetime. What do you think? The odds are greater than the last generation, right? <laughs> We're getting closer. We don't know when he's coming, but he is certainly going to come at some point. Uh, next line. And then Paul gives uh, the reminder that all this is taking place in the sight of our God and Father. God is always watching. Verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Uh-oh, uh-oh, we have now entered into the great doctrine of election, which has caused no end of discussion forever and ever. You know what gets the most discussion sometimes among all the theologues? It's things we can't fully understand. It's amazing how much ink that gets. Uh, let's talk about it just a little bit. The New American Standard is more literal here, translating this. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Uh, in election, you know what election is? You choose. Election is the idea of choice. And election is the idea of God's choice. And so the idea here is that the love of God is behind his sovereign choice of them. Here is the doctrine of election. The word election means to pick or to choose. God picked us. He chose us. Well, on what basis? Because of our good looks? No. Uh, it's all grace. It's a grace election. Right? It really, it is, there's no reason that God would choose us other than he wanted to. Uh, this is sovereign stuff here. Uh, election is a doctrine that has been debated for centuries. Ironically, it is a doctrine that no one can completely fathom. As I say, I find it interesting that sometimes people fight most intensely over things they don't fully understand. No one who takes the scripture seriously denies the reality of God's sovereign election. I mean, it's right here. And yet no one can completely comprehend it. Election emphasizes that salvation is ultimately of God. It was his idea, not ours. It's based on his initiative, not ours. Election reminds us that salvation is God's work and that he who has begun this good work in us will complete it. He has chosen to do so. And by the way, when it comes to these kind of things, I, whatever, whatever God says, I'm all good with. Even if I don't comprehend it, I, I, I'm okay. I don't say I got to figure it out even. Uh, God, my little three-pound brain can't keep up with God. And so if, if he says it, I, I agree. Amen. I'm not going to argue. Uh, but notice uh, Homer Kent has a great statement. The sovereign act of God chose some to experience the blessing of salvation. The reasons or criteria for his choice have not been told to us, except that it was according to his own good pleasure. Well, amen. Amen to that. When it comes to the doctrine of election, people often get out of biblical balance, in my opinion. There are tensions here regarding God's sovereign choice and the responsibility of human response. I want to go wherever the scripture leads me. I want to hold to an inductive view that brings all the verses to the table. That's why I call myself a biblicist versus merely being a Calvinist or an Arminian. 
although I emphasize a God-centered theology. And uh, I sometimes say you can fall off either side of the horse. And if I'm going to fall off either side, I'm going to fall off on the God side of things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning of him and through him and to him are all things. And uh, so, yeah. Uh, But I do acknowledge human responsibility in the mix. I just don't understand how that completely meshes. And so note... Uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, the difficulty in putting divine election and human responsibility together is understanding how both can be true. That both are true is taught in the Bible. There you go. How both can be true is apparently incomprehensible to finite human minds. Uh, no one has ever been able to explain this antimony satisfactory. Antimony is something that, you know, you just can't quite put it together. It, it defies, ultimately, human reason. And I think that's true. Uh, so note uh, my next slide here. Uh, three things that must be kept in biblical tension, I believe. Number one, God has chosen some for salvation. Two, whoever deni- desires may come. Uh, that's what it says at the end of the book. Uh, let him come, whoever desires. Let him come and take of the water of life freely. You're invited to come. You say, well, I, I, I just wasn't invited. You know, I wasn't part of the elect. I, well, I don't. No, you're invited. Uh, and everyone is responsible for what they do with Christ. I mean, the Bible's very clear there. I mean, that's why there's a judgment, by the way, because there is human responsibility. I mean, if we're just puppets, there's no responsibility. What will be, will be. Say, you know, just Whatever. But there is human responsibility. So, okay. Uh, Note at the bottom of the page here. Now come back to the beginning of verse 4. Notice he starts out by saying, knowing. How could Paul say he knew that these were among the elect? How can you know someone is saved? That's a great question, right? Well, top of page 6. Well, in the absolute final analysis, this knowledge belongs to God alone, as Paul himself acknowledges in 2 Timothy 2.19. The Lord knows them that are his, he says. Still, it is generally possible for us to know. Christ said, by their fruits, you will know them. Not absolutely, but we get a pretty good feel, you know. Uh, working of the saints here, you know, we're not God. And the wheat and the tares do grow together. And, and sometimes, you know, in the end, God will sort it out. But uh, the word knowing here is the Greek word, Greek word oida, which has to do with perception or discernment. Uh, Paul is expressing confidence that they were saved because of two things. One, their response to the gospel. Number two, the ongoing fruit in their lives. These two things provide real solid evidence as to who is really saved. Note very carefully that Paul did not glibly say he knew they were the elect. It is couched in a context both backwards and forwards of great evidence. The evidence looking backward to verse 3 is their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. That's the context. Looking forward, Paul goes on to show it was their quality reception of the gospel and their ongoing testimony. How different from those who want to say people are saved because they simply prayed a prayer and then afterwards never showed any evidence in the life. That is something completely different than what Paul is saying here. Easy believism affirms salvation even when there is no evidence of it. Biblical assurance is consistently attached to the fruit of a changed life. Verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. See, he's continuing his thought where why he's convinced that they are part of the elect. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Uh, Skip that next uh, paragraph. Uh, They did not simply preach with words. They did that, but there was a supernatural dynamic behind it. The Holy Spirit's power was behind the message. It was a moving of the Spirit. Uh, Note the lesson. The power is in the gospel as it is empowered by the Spirit. However, God effectively uses vessels that are full of faith and integrity. Paul says, you know what kind of men we were. So, yeah, the Spirit does it, but he uses men of integrity, women of integrity. Uh, Verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. In a sense, new Christians become followers of those who lead them to faith. They get in step with those who are already believers. But the emphasis is not merely on the people, but on Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. 
Okay, page 7. Let's come down to verse 7. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. This church was a standout. Uh, They became examples to all who lived in the Roman provinces of Macedonia and Achaia, which largely largely could uh, correspond to the area of modern-day Greece today. Verse 8. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so we do not need to say anything. Sounded forth means to blast forth. The term was used of blowing a trumpet. This church was not ashamed of the gospel, that's for sure. They were blasting it out. They blasted forth the word of the Lord in the whole surrounding area, even beyond the provinces of Macedonia and Achaia. So, wow, this church was getting the gospel out, right? How about Council Bluffs in Omaha? Can we do something about that? Maybe so. I mean, they were doing these whole provinces. I mean, it was blasting out. They were known as far as for the gospel getting out. Verse 9, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Wow, it was fruitful. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. For verse 9 is a, is a key text that describes the nature of true conversion. The word conversion means to turn. And a form of this very word is used here. Salvation involves a turning point. There is a turning to God from sin. This turning involves a change of mind, which the Bible calls repentance. Uh, top of page 8. Note the driving emphasis here is first turning to God and then from idols. God is the focal point. He is the draw. Uh, Skip that next paragraph. The contrast is made between idols and the living and true God. There is only one true God, and He is the living God. I love that about God, and you do too. Uh, Next paragraph, but Paul is not done yet. This was no idol, pun intended, turning point. They turn to serve the living and true God. This is radical. Radical stuff. You see the word serve literally means to serve as a slave. In other words, this really was a life-changing commitment. Where before they were really serving idols, now they are serving the living and true God. Uh, Their conversion result, their turning resulted in that. That's the fruit. Verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven... This is, this is, they got saved to wait for, for Jesus. By the way, it doesn't say, and to wait for the Antichrist. No, 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 no. They got saved to wait for Jesus, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The word wait means to wait expectantly. So we see these three defining marks of true conversion. Turn to God from idols. Turn to serve God as a slave, literally. And to wait for Jesus to come. Kind of three defining marks of true conversion. You know, if you got that going on, you maybe could look at these people and say, knowing your election, this is clear, strong evidence of true salvation. That's the context of that verse 4. All right, let's uh, turn the page to page 9. Jesus was raised from the dead. He went back to heaven. He is currently seated there at the right hand of God the Father. One day he will come in the clouds of heaven for his church. You know how I begin my morning, right? Almost every morning I open my curtains perhaps today, perhaps today, perhaps today. And then I wait a little bit. (laughs) Perhaps today. One of these days is going to happen. I really would, that would be a fascinating thing if it happened when I open my curtain. But anyway... Uh, When Christ comes, it will result in a great deliverance out of this world. You see, the world is on a collision course with God's judgment of wrath, but we are going to be delivered from it in the rapture. This is our blessed hope, and we're looking forward to it. We don't know when it's going to happen. We're not setting any dates, but it is going to happen. It is our blessed hope. Uh, Some take the deliverance here to be from hell, but the context of the whole book would argue otherwise. There's an overarching eschatological theme, last, last days, last events, eschatological last, last things, uh, theme that pervades the entire book. The coming of Christ is mentioned in every chapter. I mean, that's a pervading theme. Every chapter it's mentioned. Uh, let's jump down under the LaHaye 
quote, here are the main arguments that a pre-tribulation rapture deliverance is in view. Number one, the context of the entire book is developed around the coming of Christ for the church. I mean, that's a, that's a, whole, that's a whole emphasis. It is the theme of the book. The concerns of the Thessalonians in context was not salvation from hell, but rather whether they as a church were destined to experience the day of the Lord's wrath. Paul is assuring them of deliverance from the day of the Lord's wrath. That's the whole focal point of the book. Uh, The preposition from is a Greek word ek, which literally means out from. Number three, the parallel cross-reference in 5.9, where Paul says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation clearly has deliverance from the day of the Lord judgment in view in the context. And number four, God's coming wrath in context has tribulation judgment in view. So, the New Testament consistently presents the rapture as a deliverance from God's coming wrath. First the rapture happens, and then God's wrath will fall upon the world. That's the order of things. Uh, Bottom of the page, the same word wrath is used repeatedly in the book of Revelation to express God's judgment that will come upon the world in the context of the day of the Lord judgment. By the way, one year in VBS, we went through the book of Revelation, and like 19 times the church is mentioned in chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Revelation, and then the scenes in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, and then you have 6 through 18, chapter 6 through 18, judgment that comes on the world, and the church is never mentioned once. In all that whole long judgment section. The next time the church is mentioned is in reference to Christ coming with the church. And after that. So anyway, uh, all that is extra. No extra charge. Anyway, uh, top of page 10. From all this, the church will be delivered. Perhaps today, in Paul's day, they were waiting for the deliverance of the rapture. We are still waiting. The coming of Christ for the church is ever imminent, meaning it could happen at any time. Skip the next paragraph. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, uh, it might properly be called a manual for pastoral ministry or a model ministry. Paul here reviews the nature of his team's ministry that took place at Thessalonica. So let's look at that. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, a simple review of chapter 1 reveals that their ministry at Thessalonica was not in vain. That is, it was not empty. It had results. It made an impact. Verse 2, But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, you know, the next town up, they were terribly treated. Uh, He says, As you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. You might think, Oh my, we got treated so terribly at Philippi. Now we come down to Thessalonica. Maybe we'll tame it down a little bit. Oh no, no, they didn't. They were bold. Uh, jump down about the fourth paragraph down. Bold literally means all speech. In other words, they told it like it was without holding back. Boldness in the New Testament is often associated with speaking the gospel. And the gospel, it means good news. And it's the good news about Jesus Christ, who he is as the God-man and what he has done in dying for our sins and rising again. Page 11, third paragraph down. Note in... 1.8, Paul spoke of their faith toward God. And here in chapter 2, he speaks of the gospel of God. Both of these imply the deity of Jesus Christ because elsewhere we read of faith in Christ and about the gospel of Christ. These inner uh, changes clearly show the deity of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Christ is the gospel of God. It's the same gospel. Verse 3. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So he is kind of forced to defend his ministry, and he, they knew this. Uh, second paragraph there, their exhortation was not based in error, as some were evidently saying. It was not motivated by uncleanness. The mystery religions were fraught with immoral rites, but there was nothing of this sort in their appeal. Uh, The word deceit is related to the ideas of bait, fish, hook, or trap. They were not dishonest in any way. So they were were very honest and straightforward in their ministry. And he's he's rehashing that. Verse 4, one of my uh, favorite verses. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. I often talk about an audience of one. You know, God is the one that ultimately we're going to give an account before. And uh, it's only going to matter what he says. Approved is the idea of being approved after testing. God had been testing Paul and his companions. They had been through the rigors and had been found faithful. 
They have not compromised the gospel, bottom of the page. Having been approved, God entrusted them with his gospel. What an awesome privilege. What an awesome responsibility. This was a stewardship. As those entrusted with the gospel, they spoke. If you have been entrusted with the gospel, you better speak. We are responsible to share this message. But note the qualifier, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Let's come across the page, uh, page 12 and verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Flattering words are, are not merely compliments. They are smooth words that are a ploy by which one might take advantage of someone. He said, we didn't do that. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Uh, they had uh, apostolic authority. They maybe could have made some demands, but they didn't do so. Uh, they didn't do that. Let's uh, go to the next page, page 13, and just a summary of what we might call the negatives concerning defending his ministry. Our coming to you is not in vain. Exhortation did not come from error. Our exhortation did not come from uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, nor as pleasing men. Neither at any time did we use flattering words, nor a cloak of covetousness, nor did we seek glory from men. So, what I call the eight, the eight negatives in defending his ministry. On the other hand, we have uh, the positives, and uh, we'll begin to look at them. Chapter 2, verse 7. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. What a wonderful picture. They were not harsh, but gentle. I like that. You know, that, that to me is the, the, the picture of a good shepherd. Good shepherding, right? Gentle. There's a place you have to be firm. That's true. But they were, they were gentle. We were gentle among you. So gentle, even as a mother nurtures her children. This is a picture of tender care. Verse 8. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. The description here is of intensive labor. They worked very hard while they were there. Next paragraph, the reason they worked so hard is because they did not want to be a financial burden to any of the Thessalonians. Uh, come across page 14, middle of the page there, under the 1 Corinthians 9.18 reference. Paul's full orb teaching is that indeed he had the right to be supported in his ministry, but he did not use that right, which was his prerogative. He did not want anything to be a potential hindrance to the gospel ministry. Verse 10. Uh, you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Uh, skip that next paragraph. The critics were challenging Paul and his teammates' integrity, but the Thessalonians knew better firsthand. They were there. They saw it for themselves. If they would think logically, the truth would be self-evident. Bottom of the page, someone has said that the best sermons are those that are lived out, where the best sermon is a holy life. And that's part of it. We see both in the text. We see bold preaching that seeks to please God, and we see blameless living that enhances the preaching. Okay, page 15 and verse 11. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So now we, kind of, we have the kind of treatment of the gentle treatment of the mother, but now here's kind of the disciplinary emphasis of the father. The more stern, uh, we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. There was a serious charge that went on as well. It wasn't all just soft. Exhortation is the idea of strengthening encouragement. Next uh, paragraph, words of comfort are those that calm and console. And then to be balanced, the father figure must also charge. To charge means to implore, to affirm in a serious and, and dignified way. And then note, he says, every one of you. It was very personal. And then uh, jump over to page 16. So here we see the uh, seven positives of his uh, pastoral ministry. Maybe. Okay. There. Thank you. Uh, seven positives. We were gentle as a, as a nursing mother. 
affectionately longing for you. We were pleased to impart to you the gospel. We were pleased to impart to you uh, our own lives, laboring night and day that we might not be a burden. Devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved, exhorted, comforted, and charged as, as a father. So what, we, what I call the, the seven positives. Well, what effort he put in, what an investment, and to what end? Well, that's what we will see next time in our next session. But we do have two or three minutes if you have a question. Anybody? See, I surprised you, didn't I? I left extra time here. All right. Well, if there are no questions, let me go ahead and lead us in prayer. We have refreshments in the uh, coffee room, which is right to my left over here. You go through those doors, go straight back there. By the way, our air conditioner quit back there. So it's going to, you know, it's going to lead into the segue on my section on hell when we get back. I'm, I'm just kidding. That's not true. But it is a little warm back there. There are fans. It'll be tolerable. Yeah, let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for uh, the book of First Thessalonians. And we thank you for Paul's ministry. Uh, we often mention how, how you use him in such a powerful way. But Lord, the, the message was powerful, but there was also lives of integrity that were powerful. And Lord, how you use that in, in the context of the Thessalonians. And yet as new believers, they needed to be uh, shored up in terms of their faith in some ways. And we will get to that as we continue on in the book here. Uh, bless our time of sharing and uh, thank you for the treats and for the hands that provided and uh, prepared it. And uh, so bless our fellowship there. And uh, Lord, we ask your continued blessing on our evening. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We'll see you back here at 730. Okay, why don't we assemble and we'll get started for our second session here. We are picking it up on page 16. We left off there at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12. And so let me, uh, let me pick it up there. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. I know I'm moving fast, but I honestly, I think I'm slower than other years, right? Ah, thank you, Amy. Amy. And Amy speaks the truth. Always. I've worked hard to, so I, I'm very selective here. I know I'm still moving fast, but there's no other option if we're going to get through the material here. But anyway, 1 Thessalonians 2.12 on page 16, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Uh, skip the quote, by grace, when we believe the gospel, we are now God's children and God expects us to live accordingly. Uh, jump down to the next, uh, the next paragraph. Uh, walk refers to our conduct, how we live. The standard is God. We are to walk worthy of God. We are to be holy for he is holy. Skip the next paragraph. It is for God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. This is our calling. God summons us to his very own kingdom and glory. Think about that. This is our destiny. This is our calling. This is where we are headed. And so we should live accordingly now. Positionally, we're already there. And we're not in the kingdom yet, but positionally we're there. Just as I say, same thing about heaven. Uh, we're pictured as being positionally in heaven, but we're not there yet. Same thing with the kingdom. Uh, let's, uh, go to the next page, page, uh, 17, top of the page. Another favorite verse of mine, 213, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as, as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. Uh, skip the reference there. Come down to Paul is constantly thankful to God for how they received the message. Paul emphasizes that it was the word of God they preached, and it was as such that they welcomed it. 
Skip the next paragraph. The thing about the Word of God is that it works. Isn't that interesting? It works. Uh, Paul says it effectively works. Uh, the word effectively is the Greek word energio, from which we get our English word energy. Uh, the idea is that this word is supernaturally energized. There is a supernatural activity behind it. Uh, let's go to the next page, page 18. Uh, second paragraph there. It has often been said the word of God is like a lion. It doesn't need defending. Just let it loose and it will take care of itself. Right? Uh, but note the qualifier. It works. It effectively works in you who believe. Sometimes people say, well, I tried that and it just didn't work for me. Well, that is not a commentary on the Bible, but on the person who says this. If they really believed, it would really work. It would really change their life. It works wherever it is truly believed. It is life-transforming, life-changing when truly believed. Uh, Jump down to the Edmund Hebert quote there. The present tense marks their believing as an abiding characteristic. A genuine faith is a continuing faith. All right, let's jump down to the next verse at the bottom of the page, uh, 214. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. What evidence did Paul see in their lives for the word of God working effectively? What evidence was there of the true faith? Well, it was that they were willing to suffer for the sake of the truth. That's the evidence. Next page, page 19. In like manner now, the Thessalonians suffered for their faith at the hands of their own people. Suffering is a mark of being genuine. People will not generally suffer for something that is not a conviction in their hearts, at least not for very long. In the parable of the sower and the soils, Christ shared that there are those who believe for a while, but then in time of testing they fall away because they have no true root down in their hearts. They had a superficial faith that wasn't genuinely rooted in the heart. The evidence of their bogus faith comes out in the time of suffering or testing. So note uh, the reference here, Matthew 13. But he who received the seed on stony places is he who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. So they're all excited initially, yet there's no root in himself, but endures only for a while. And tribulation or persecution arises because of the word. Immediately he stumbles. So immediately they receive with joy, but then immediately they go the other way uh, when any little persecution comes along. Uh, Verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets have persecuted us and they do not please God and are contrary to all men. In the early days of the church, it was the Jews who responded with the most hostility against the gospel. Paul recounts their history of rebellion against the truth. Jump down under the quote there uh, from uh, Couch and Hinson. Yet it is true that the Jews, in calling for the crucifixion of Christ, that his blood be on us and our children. Paul adds it characteristically, the Jews are contrary to all men. Contrary means antagonistic. The word literally means over against or opposite. They had a bias against everyone. It's like Jews, (laughs) they got problems with everybody out here. Uh, As a chosen people, they naturally had an ethnic bias which included a religious bias. These biases resulted in great hostility against the gospel. Yes, they had a zeal for God, but Paul says in Romans 10, 2, it was not according to knowledge. They were missing the gospel truth about Jesus Christ. Verse 16, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles. This is the attitude of the Jews, that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. The wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So the result of Jewish bias and prejudice was that they forbade Paul and his co-workers to speak to the Gentiles so they might be saved. Uh, Not only did the Jews in general reject Christ themselves, but they also did their best to prevent anyone else from hearing about him. In this sense, they were contrary to all men. Uh, Jump down uh, just under the middle of the page here in bold. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. Literally, this phrase is, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The implication is that there is a limit to which God allows sin to go, and then he brings judgment. Skip the next paragraph. 
has come upon them. It's in the aorist tense, which signifies fact of action, not necessarily time of action. It is so certain it is spoken of as an already established fact. Many have wondered what this wrath specifically refers to. Does it refer to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70? Does it refer to hell? Does it refer to Israel being set aside during the time of the church age? All these are possibilities. But the greater context of the book argues for the coming eschatological wrath of the tribulation period. Again, the whole book revolves around this theme. All right, uh, page 21 Skip that top paragraph. Literally, the Greek reads, the wrath, referring to a very specific wrath, probably in view, is the day of the Lord's wrath associated with the tribulation period. Middle of the page. When one considers the principle of the cup of iniquity being filled, one wonders how long the patience of God will endure before full-blown judgment comes upon our country and upon the whole world. Verse 17. But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Again, there were people behind the scenes saying, Paul doesn't really care about you. These false teachers are wanting to come in and sway the people. And Paul is saying, no, we do care about you. This verse implies that there were some critics on the scene who were accusing Paul and his team of not genuinely caring for them. Of course, Paul vigorously refutes this. Verse 18, Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. This verse makes it clear that Paul is the essential writer of this letter. Paul explains that repeatedly he wanted to come and see him, but that Satan hindered them. The name Satan means adversary. So there's real spiritual warfare going on here. Page 22, top of the page, chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Paul's critics were challenging whether he really valued the Thessalonians. And Paul responds by emphasizing just how precious these believers were to him with this rhetorical question. What is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Hope again refers to future expectation. In this context, he is thinking of rewards. Paul asks, what is the hope of our future reward? Joy refers to delight or blessedness. Next paragraph. Eternal life is a free gift received by faith alone. Christ paid our sin debt. We don't do anything to earn eternal life. However, there is going to be a judgment of believers to determine their reward. God is going to evaluate the quality of our service and reward us accordingly. Next paragraph. The word crown is Stephanus. It does not refer to a royal crown such as would be worn by a king. Rather, it refers to the victor's crown or wreath that was given to the winner of an athletic contest. It was associated with a reward or a prize. So literally in view here is a crown of glory. Uh, The New Testament speaks of several crowns in relationship to believers. Probably some overlap here, a lot of overlap. But it talks about an imperishable crown for living a disciplined life. A crown of rejoicing for being a soul winner. That's what I think we're talking about here. A crown of life for enduring temptation. A crown of righteousness for those who love Christ's appearing. A crown of glory for faithful elders. So a number of uh, emphases there in relationship to crowns. Paul answers his rhetorical question with yet another question. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Uh, The word coming here is the Greek word Perusia. Perusia is a combination of two Greek words, meaning to be and alongside of. This word literally means presence or arrival, emphasizes personal presence. It was often used of a royal visit. An emperor's visit was called perusia. And so note, uh, we got the three principal uh, Greek words here. Uh, Perusia, arrival, presence, to be with his royal highness, uh, pakalupsis unveiling his power and glory disclosed, epiphania, manifestation, revealing of his divine greatness. So we have certain Greek words that that are brought out in reference to his coming. All right, page 23. Note Paul responds, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Paul says, you are our reward. And he repeats it again in verse 20. 
For you are our glory and joy. Skip the next line. Paul says when our life's work is weighed in the balance, our reward decided, and our reward decided, it will be based on our work with you. Here's a very important point. When we get to heaven, what is God going to base our rewards on? Well, he's going to base it on the quality of work we have done for him. And what is the work that we are doing for him? What is it all about? It's about people. When you boil it down, God is going to reward each one of us for how we have impacted people for him. That's it. That's the secret of rewards. Come down to uh, the bottom of the page there in the bold Dawson Trotman, founder of the Navigators, used to emphasize to believers that we were born to reproduce. His challenge that lingers to this day was, where is your man? Where is your woman? Where is your boy? Where is your girl? Believer, what will be the crown of your rejoicing on Judgment Day? It will be the people you have impacted for the cause of Christ. Where are the people you are building into? There is your reward. Maybe kind of a sobering thing to think about. Page 24. Top of the page, 1 Thessalonians 3. One. Therefore, when we could no longer endure, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. So Paul has just expressed how precious the Thessalonians are to him, and how he desired to come and visit them, but was repeatedly hindered by Satan. He doesn't get into specifics in terms of what that involved, but it's interesting. (laughs) You might say, well, God sovereignly just didn't allow it. Well, that's true. God is sovereign over everything. But he's bringing in the detail. Satan got in the way. In context, he is very concerned about them, wondering how 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 their newfound faith is doing. Uh, jump down, let's skip that next line or lines uh, at, in the middle of the page here. At that point, the decision was made to send Timothy back to Thessalonica, which would mean that Paul would have to go it all alone at Athens. So uh, here's our map. Uh, he's, uh, they are at Athens, and the decision is made to send Timothy back to Thessalonica which was quite a trek to get back to. But, and that would mean that he would be here alone. And it would be tough. Athens was a tough place to be alone. But it was worth it to him to have follow-up for the Thessalonians. They needed some follow-up. And especially the follow-up they needed, we will see as we get into chapter 4 and chapter 5, which, Lord willing, we'll get there tomorrow night. First uh, Thessalonians 3.2 And sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow labor in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. It was perhaps because of Timothy's youth that Paul gives such a strong endorsement of him. Paul regularly used Timothy as a follow-up minister to fledgling churches. Uh, next page, page 25. <clears throat> Middle of the page. Timothy was a fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. Three times in chapter 2, Paul spoke of the gospel of God. Now he speaks of the gospel of Christ. And the question here I have is, are there then two gospels? The gospel of God versus the gospel of Christ. Are there two gospels? Emphatic answer, no, there is not. The gospel of God is the gospel of Christ because, in fact, Christ is God, right? The phrase gospel of God emphasizes that this message has God at its source, while gospel of Christ emphasizes that the substance of the message is about Christ. So Timothy was sent to establish and encourage them concerning their faith. Uh, Jump down to the next paragraph. Faith refers to their personal faith. Faith is simply taking God at his word. That's what faith is. It's believing what God says concerning the gospel of Christ. It's believing what God says concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, followed by his resurrection from the dead. Verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. I want you to think about that just for a moment. (laughs) Don't be shaken by these afflictions. We're appointed to this. That's uh, an important statement. Here we see the concern of Paul about their faith. It was the challenge of current afflictions they were experiencing. Top of page 26. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation 
just as it happened, and you know. Skip that next paragraph. The prosperity gospel appeals to natural thinking. This gospel, the prosperity gospel, says if you accept Christ, all will be well. If you're right with God, he will bless you with health, wealth, and prosperity. Hence, this is called the prosperity gospel. In reality, this is a false gospel. It is true that God has promised to meet our needs in accordance with his purpose and will. But the reality is God's will for his people often involves persecution and hardship. Paul himself said this in Philippians chapter 4. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So note Paul's own testimony there. It's not like everything was all roses in terms of, you know, prosperity. There were hard times that he went through as well. Uh, Skip that next paragraph. Coming to faith does not signify an end of afflictions and tribulations, but rather acceptance of the gospel assures that you will experience these things on some level. Uh, Paul says they should not be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. That is a strong statement. Next uh, page, page 27. The word appointed means destined. As believers, they had a divine appointment with afflictions and tribulation. You think that has any application for us? When you go through some hard times, remember this about the Thessalonians. They were destined for it. This is the normal lot for believers. And knowing this, knowing this will bring stability to our lives when it happens. We shouldn't be shocked when difficult times come and say, well, I must be in sin. You know, Job's friends show up, right? Uh, there's something wrong with you. You got sin in your life. That's why you're sick. Uh, you have sin in your life. That's why you lost your job. Anyway, not necessarily. It might just be part of the, the battle that we're appointed to to bring glory to God in the midst of that. Verse 5, for this reason when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means a tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. So the concern was about their faith. And it continued to mount until Paul decided that something had to be done. At that point, he sent Timothy to know about the the state of their faith. The all-consuming concern was the, the state of their faith. And the ultimate issue was whether they indeed had a saving faith that continues on or whether it was merely a flash in the pan indicative of a temporary bogus faith. Uh, page 28. Let's go across uh, the page. Uh, let's go down to the J. Vernon McGee quote. Another purpose uh, of afflictions is to test the genuineness of our belief. It does test us. There are believers and there are a lot of counterfeit ones. One thing that will really reveal the genuineness of faith is the ability to endure trouble through faith in God. Afflictions reveal the genuine believer, and this is the occasion of Paul's rejoicing. J. Vernon McGee. And what I hate to say to that? Amen. <laughs> That's why I put it in here, of course. Uh, if Satan was successful, it would mean that Paul's labor might be in vain. Vain means that which is empty without result or profit. If it turned out they were empty professors, then all his labor was for naught. Certainly on an individual basis, God will reward the labor, no matter the response of the hearer. But in terms of the fruit in the form of souls, this endeavor would be in vain if their faith proved to be bogus. Paul's concern is fruit in the form of souls. This, in his mind, was the crux of lasting fruit. Verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. So good news. The word translated good news here is always used in conjunction with the gospel with the exception being right here. To hear that indeed the Thessalonians were preserving in their faith, thus showing they had true saving faith, was like hearing the gospel to Paul. It was good news in the superlative. Page 29. And note the qualifier of their faith was love. Both faith and love have the definite article, meaning it literally says, the faith and the love of you. Faith is mentioned first because it is the all-important issue. We're saved by faith and by faith in Christ alone. However, if faith is real, 
the fruit of it will be love. True faith ushers in love. And the evidence of true faith is love, God's kind of love. All right, come down to verse 7. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. So Paul had recently been through a lot of affliction and distress. Affliction refers to crushing trouble or calamity. Distress is that which is pressing. In view are the pressures of ministry, conflict, and tension. So note again this tremendous emphasis on their faith. This was his concern, the Thessalonians' faith. Verse 2, concerning your faith. Verse 5, to know your faith. Verse 6, the good news of your faith. Verse 7, comforted concerning you by your faith. So he's very concerned about their faith, right? That was his concern. Verse 8, for now we live if you stand in the Lord, which is a strong way of saying that this invigorated him. It revived him again, gave him new vitality. No wonder he called it uh, in terms of good news. Uh, page 30, stand fast. Note the, the bold there. Stand fast is a military term. It is a term that indicates soldiers in the mode of no retreat. How glorious it is when converts assume the position of no retreat in their spiritual walk. Uh, you know, it's enough to make you say uh, you've affirmed your election, which is where he started out. Uh, skip the next paragraph. Believers in this life face afflictions and tribulation because of their faith. Those with a genuine faith will persevere in that faith in spite of tribulations. Tribulations are a proving mechanism that separates the true from the phony. So here we go. Uh, trials. Trials, number one, prove our faith. They refine us. They prove us. Number two, enable us to minister to others. Number three, they mature us spiritually. Uh, God uses trials. Uh, they make us stronger. You either get bitter or you get better. I mean, God has a purpose, a refining purpose in all of those things. Uh, just above the next verse there at the bottom of the page, the, re the remainder of chapter 3 is the response of Paul in receiving the good news of their standing for the Lord. It's an expression of gratitude to God for them in intercessory prayer. Verse 9, for, for what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy which with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. Top of page 31, verses 9 and 10 constitute a rhetorical question. Verse 9 is an expression of joyful thanksgiving that is abounding in the heart of Paul. His cup of joy is overflowing because of Timothy's report back concerning their steadfast faith in the face of ongoing persecution. By the way, thanksgiving really is characteristic of true believers. We see... Unbelievers, you know, being defined here in Romans 1, the, because although they knew God intellectually, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. It's kind of like the first characteristic that defines depraved unbelievers. Became futile in their thoughts, foolish hearts were darkened. So, unthankful. He's very thankful. Note Paul is not rejoicing himself or what he has done, but rather in what God has done in their lives. All the credit goes to God. Verse 10. Night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Tremendous emphasis on his deep concern for them here. Let's go to page 32, uh, second paragraph. Paul was praying specifically, specifically that he would be able to make a personal face-to-face -face visit. Uh, perfect means to put in order, to, to properly arrange. As used here, it means to complete or make good that which is still needed. Earlier in the book, he had commended them on their persevering faith. However, there was still room for growth. They were still young Christians, and there were still gaps in their faith life. Next paragraph. In reality, what was lacking in their faith is what Paul fills in in chapters 4 and 5. The major thing was confusion over Christ's return. But Paul also shares about the essential importance of morality, of moral and sexual purity, as well as accountability and matters related to Christian living. Skip the note. Apparently, God did answer Paul's prayer for a return visit, but not immediately. In fact, it appears it was not until the next missionary journey, the, the third journey, about five years later, that Paul was able to again visit Macedonia and presumably Thessalonica. All right. We got two minutes left. Time for questions. Anybody have a question? I wonder if I'll get a question out of you this week. You think that'll happen? Yes, Andrew. 
can always count on you. Yep. On the reward itself? Yes. Um, you know, it's, it is, a, it is a, a pretty major motivation factor Paul presents. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, you know, where some will have nothing, wood, hay, and straw, you know, versus those with precious metals. And the, the whole context here is about building into the lives of people. So he does hold it out as, as a major motivation factor. I know some people think, what's well, real spiritual. We should just serve just because we want to serve. But really, the Bible does hold out this issue of rewards. Uh, Christ said, lay your treasures up in heaven. I mean, you know, so, so I think that is a part of it. We are, we are made that way to where we need to be motivated by something. And certainly, we are motivated by our, our love for Christ. You know, we, we do serve out of, out of love. But there is this issue of accountability and stewardship. And that also is a motivator in our lives. We see both, both aspects. It's not just totally one or the other, I don't think. That's a good question, though. Very good. All right. Anyone else? Okay. I hope you can come back tomorrow night. We're going to get to the rapture, Lord willing, tomorrow night, right? You don't want to miss the rapture, do you? <laughs> you don't have to be here to, to be in on the rapture. But as far as the teaching, the teaching... All right, Lord, we thank you for our study tonight, and we pray as we build on this as we go into the week that it would continue to be a fruitful study in our lives uh, for your glory. And Lord, ultimately, you do want to be faithful. We want to be good stewards uh, of the gifts you have given to us, of the responsibilities that we have, of the stewardship that we have. Uh, And again, Lord, we thank you for the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ and uh, the glory. You call us to your kingdom and your glory. We can't imagine what that's going to be like, but certainly the best is yet to be, and we serve in in light of that reality. Lord, again, we thank you for our time, for all the classes, and we pray that uh, they would prove to be fruitful uh, for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for coming out tonight. Good to have you all here.